so hi everybody. Thank you for coming. This is this is great. Uh, this is a kind of perfect size audience. I like I love to have. Um, and this talk was an especial pleasure for me to. I think I think the mic's a, a little high. Like I don't need to be this loud. Um, tell me if you can't hear me. Wave your hand. Um, this talk was an especial pleasure to prepare because normally I'm giving this talk in a city, and it's about once a week I give this talk somewhere else, mostly in America, and I have to spend hours on the internet, on the Google machine, and it makes it very easy actually. I find a whole bunch of images of that city, and I illustrate the concepts in the talk with images from that place. But since you guys are from all over the place, I didn't have to do that. So actually you're getting the generic talk. But the generic talk is my favorite talk, and um, it's a talk that I'm hoping applies to all of your cities, and it's the walkable city. Um, a bit of why we need it, but mostly about how to do it. But my point is that we use the, we use the term city uh, kind of loosely these days, and in fact, there are a lot of cities in America that are 1,000 um, people, 500 people. But the real issue here isn't whether you call yourself a city or not, or frankly, whether you're a metropolis or a town or a village, but essentially whether you are a community which has the potential, if not already the experience, has the potential to be a walkable place. And that's what I've dedicated my, my, my career to, and that's what I talk about. So in terms of the why we need it, um, it's a talk that, it's a whole separate talk. And usually when I go to a community, they ask me to do some, they ask me, you know, we, we, want, a, we want a keynote, whatever, it's a chamber of commerce or it's a downtown development association, or an, or an arts group or something, and they want a keynote that's like a typical keynote. So I say, okay, I'm going to do my hour-long rant about why walkability is so important. And then I say, but if you're going to bring me to your city, you need to let me do another talk, which is a two-hour-long workshop on how to make it happen in your community. And that's the talk I'm giving, it, giving to you today because that, that's, the, you know, that's the how to do it. That's the talk I'm giving you today because I only have one opportunity to address you all. So I don't want to leave without you having the chance to see the actual tools that, are, that I like to share um, with communities. Now also, the, the, the why we need it, the why be walkable discussion, because it is its own talk, I don't want to spend too much time on it because you can see it at TED. And uh, there's a, I've done a TEDx, which is a short version of the talk I'm giving tonight, but I did a TED talk, TED Cities 2.0, very easy to find, just Google me and TED, and you'll get the 18 minute version of this compelling argument uh, about why walkability is so important. And essentially the experience I had as a planner, um, you know, someone who was trained as an architect, someone who addressed these issues from first from an aesthetic perspective and then from a social perspective, was to see these ideas being taken up, but being taken up you know, with, with, with limited success and not necessarily getting the attention that we planners felt that they deserved. And a huge thing happened about 15 years ago was that three different groups who people listened to, the economists, the epidemiologists, and the environmentalists, was, okay, people could listen to environmentalists better, but these are three groups actually that have a better record of being listened to and having their advice acted upon than planners. And these three groups who people listened to started all singing, without knowing it, singing from the same hymnal and supporting the same concepts that we had been supporting, mostly from an aesthetic and from a social point of view. So what are those arguments? And this is the talk I'm not going to give you, but just to give you a taste. Oh, yeah, there's the, my reminder to tell you to watch the TED Talk. Um, but what are those arguments? The economic argument is a, is a two-sided argument. It's an argument about how costly it's been to our society to take this automobile, which used to be this instrument of freedom, and turn it into this prosthetic device that we need to live our lives, and the fact that we've built a, a landscape in, in our country uh, starting with the 1950s, where you actually have the presumption of universal automobile use and therefore the, if you will, the tax that's placed upon us, you know, that we're all working until April 15th, the typical American family is working until April 15th to pay for its cars. And of course, poor Americans are paying 40% of their income on transportation. And working Americans are paying as much for transportation as they are for housing because we've, we've mired them in this landscape where they are actually not viable without owning a car. So I talk about how we've doubled I don't mean for this to be so meta, excuse me. We have, doubled, we have doubled the number of roads in our country since 1970, and we've doubled the percent of our income that we pay for transportation as a result. That's a big, sad discussion. The positive side of the economic discussion is what happens to cities when they reorient themselves around walking and biking. 
And you can see that in Vancouver. You can see it in most Canadian cities comparing them to American cities. But the great example in, in the U.S. is Portland, which invested $60 million in bike infrastructure over about 30 years and fundamentally changed the way that they commute. And the statistic is that they're saving about 3.5% of all income earned in the region. They're, they're saving that from the amount that they're driving less. And they're spending it on their houses. On their houses, they're spending it on all kinds of uh, on all kinds of recreation. Right? Portland's famous for all of the um, roof racks and independent bookstores and strip clubs. That's all the things that Portland's supposed to have the most of in the country. And coffee. Uh, Oregonians spend more than most uh, Americans on alcohol, which could be a good thing or a bad thing, but it makes you glad that they're driving less, right? And um, but, you know, 88% of what you spend on driving leaves the local economy. And furthermore, when you're driving, you're not spending your dollars locally. And the experience when you don't drive, when you walk and bike, is that you, you know this. You're shopping at your local stores. You're reinvesting your money in your own economy. So there's all these powerful economic arguments, compelling arguments. The strongest one is that 88% of the next 100 million households formed in this country will be childless. And that everything that these folks want, principally millennials, and boomers, what they want, they don't care about the size of the yard, they don't care about the size of the house, um, they don't want the burden, frankly, of heating and cooling and cleaning and tending a big house and a big yard, and, um, and they have every reason to want, and the polls will tell you, that they want what walkable cities offer. So there's, there's a huge disconnect, because almost all the product, almost all the real estate product in our country is suburban, yet most people have every reason to want urban. That's the economic argument. The health argument is is one that I can't give enough time to. Um, certainly, I just saw the most recent Michael Pollan talk. And I have to say that the biggest crisis in our country still is the way that we, what we farm, how we process it. His latest talk is what happens between farm and table. And it's amazing. You know, the basic message is eat whatever you want, just cook it yourself. Because if you don't, you're killing yourself. And there's this whole discussion, this new Katie Couric movie, right? She's here, not in the audience, um, about what are they called? Uh, Ty typhos, no, t uh, tophies, uh, thin inside, no, thin out, tophies, thin outside, fat inside. That the, the, the typical American kid now, whatever they, they look like, has this, basically this miasmic interior of fat because of what they're eating. And that's a super compelling argument. I don't mean to discount it. But the studies have shown now very clearly there's actually a higher correlation between diet, between physical activity decisions that we're making and shout out to Nike in the room. Thank you, Nike. Um, and there's a higher correlation between inactivity and obesity than there is between diet and obesity. One British study called Gluttony versus Sloth compared the two very carefully. Um, and it's very clear that you know, because we, it's not just that, that people aren't getting gym in school or that we can't convince them to become you know, triathletes on the weekend. The problem is that we've engineered out of our daily lives the useful walk. And so the idea of walking or biking has become so useless to so many people that we have a society of you know, morbid children. And, you know, one third of all kids born after 2000 are predicted by the CDC to become diabetic. And the burdens that's going to place on our society are astounding. So um, that's the health argument. And then finally, the environmental argument. The environmental movement in America has historically been an Arcadian movement. It's been about communing with nature. It's been an anti-city movement. From Jefferson on, he said, Jeff Jefferson said, cities are pestilential to the health, to the liberties, to the morals of man. If we continue to pile upon ourselves in cities as they do in Europe, we shall become as corrupt as they are in Europe and take to eating one another as they do there. <laughs> and that's the history of the environmental movement in the U.S. And the carbon maps, the carbon maps of the country, this is Chicago, only pounded that point home more strongly because they were red hot in the cities. It's carbon per, carbon per square mile, red hot in the cities and cooler in the suburbs and dark in the, in, the, in the exurbs, frankly, where everyone's driving. But then economists in Chicago said, and you can get these maps for any city in the U.S. at the Center for Neighborhood Technology. And the economists at the Center for Neighborhood Technology said, what if instead of measuring per square, per square mile, we measure per household? Because there's only so many of us in the country at any given time, and we can choose to live where we have the smallest carbon footprint. And the maps absolutely flipped. And the environmental movement absolutely flipped. And now they say things like, you know, humans are a destructive species. If you love nature, stay the hell away from it. Move to a city. The denser, the better. And this is now the strongest environmental argument. 
You know, I changed all the energy saver bulbs. All the, I changed all the bulbs in my house to energy savers, as you should. And that saves as much energy in a year as moving to a walkable neighborhood saves in a week. So we've been having the wrong environmental discussion in America. It's been, about, it's been about what can I buy to add to what I already have to make my footprint lighter, frankly, right? But it's, it should be where am I living? What's my location efficiency? Do I have to drive everywhere? So those, in a nutshell, are the three arguments I'm not going to give you today. So I can talk to you more about uh, actually how to achieve that. So we begin with this presumption that walkable places are sustainable places, and we ask the question, if walkable places are our are, are, are future and our are, are happy, healthy, you know, economically viable and economically robust future, then how do we get people to walk? And the answer, I believe, in the U.S., well, it's what I call the general theory of walkability. I mean that as a little bit of a joke, but... Um, it's something I've thought about a long time. It's something a lot of my colleagues have been working on for a long time. And we kind of together have reached the conclusion um, that, oh, and it's in my book. Oh, and I wanted to mention, the book is in the bookstore, but it's running out. So if you get there and there isn't one, um, please frequent your local bookstore on foot. But they do have it at Amazon. I do admit that. Um, in America, where driving is so easy, and where the car sits, but where most Americans have cars, the car sits between you and everything else in the driveway, right? You, if you own a car, four fifths of the cost of, of owning the car, uh, four fifths of the cost of your driving are owning the car, and one fifth is driving the car. You know, you've got these fixed costs that are very large and marginal costs that are very small. So the smart economic decision, if you own a car, is to drive it as much as possible. And every mile you drive costs less than every mile you've driven before. And so there's all these incentives, and of course we don't pay the full cost of driving. Period, and then when you add all the all the externalities like you know accidents and deaths and injuries and uh, tr and, and you know pollution and global warming, uh, we aren't paying a fraction of the real cost of our driving. So there's this there's this perverse incentive for us to drive as much as possible. How can we get people to walk in that in the, under those circumstances? And the answer is the walk has to be better than the drive, or at least as good as the drive. And to do that, you have to do four things simultaneously, which is the framework for my talk tonight. The walk has to be useful, the walk has to be safe, the walk has to be comfortable, and it has to be interesting. And if you don't do all four of those things, then the walk isn't better than the drive. And I should say, you know, a lot of Americans don't have a choice. A third of Americans are either you know, too young, too old, too infirm, too poor, you know, can't drive. And they become the burdens of the rest of us, frankly, to who chauffeur them around. But, you know, and I should say, often when I'm brought to a city, it's by, in, in Iowa, every city of a certain size has a human rights office. Isn't that great? They have a human rights office. And they bring me to their cities because they realize walking and biking too, walking, biking, and rolling is a fundamental human right. And we need to protect, we need to protect this right. Okay? But um, if we're going to achieve, if we're going to get an environment that is supportive of those people who don't have a choice, we need to have walkers by choice. Because until the majority, until a significant portion of the population is walking, the environment will not cater to those who choose to walk or have to walk, either of them. So the reason to walk is a couple stories I learned from my mentors. This is Andre Stoani and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg, who founded the, the New Urbanism Movement, um, where I went when I graduated from school because I thought it was the most interesting thing going on in design um, in America. Um, a lot of the slides I'm showing you are slides I got from them literally 20 years ago. And I should say, you know, a lot, most of the ideas I'm sharing with you are ideas that they, that they began, not me. I'm, I'm firmly second generation in this effort. Um, but Andres likes to tell this story called, the, he calls it the story of American planning. He said the formative victory of the planning movement was when the, the planners said, you know, people are choking from the fumes of the dark satanic mills. And if we move housing away from the uh, factories, People will live longer, and in fact, lifespans increased dramatically, immediately, and the planners were hailed as heroes, and they've been trying to repeat that experience ever since. So you have the onset of Euclidean zoning, the separation of the landscape into large areas of single use, and most of the time when I, you know, planners now know this is wrong, theoretically. How's that? Okay. Thank you for saying that. I'm going to just block the screen. Um, you know, planners, planners will now tell you this is wrong, but the fact remains that most of the time when I arrive in a community um, to look at a piece of land that needs to be planned, this, there's a plan like this. Like, I'm going to point to my monitor. There's a plan like this already on the land. And um, all this does is guarantee an unwalkable outcome. 
because it's not nothing useful is close enough for you to walk to. Everything's supersized and, and far apart from everything else. Anyway, I was an art history major. People say that's a waste of time, but I can say this is a Rothko, and what you want is a Syrah. <laughs> you want the pointillist, and the smaller each piece of use is, the more walkable environment you have. And of course, this is a deceiving image even because one of the red colors there is vertically mixed use. So clearly the most walkable communities we have are the ones with the finest confetti-like grain of uses mixed together. And then this leads into what I want to briefly tell you, which you may have heard before, because we've been saying this for 25 years now, but the, the fundamental story of new urbanism, and I'm a car, proud card-carrying you know, founding member of the, the Congress for New Urbanism. The key discussion of new urbanism is that there are only two ways, two tested ways to build community in the world. There are a hundred different ways to make a city, maybe a thousand, but there's only two things we've tested by the thousands. One is the traditional neighborhood, and the other is suburban sprawl. The traditional neighborhood, this is Newburyport, Massachusetts, near where I grew up. Um, it's, and you're actually looking at several different neighborhoods of Newburyport, but you can see it's, it's defined by being diverse and by being compact. Almost every neighborhood you look at across history and through cultures uh, is about a five-minute walk from edge to center. And you see here places to live, places to work, places to worship, places to shop, places to recreate. Right? So most of your daily needs are within walking distance. Um, and it's also defined, before we got into this whole walkability discussion, the traditional neighborhood was defined as being walkable. And what that meant was there were so many different streets that each street could be small and therefore accommodating to pedestrians as well as cars. Then the other model, and by the way, all my apocryphal photos are by an, an amazing aerial photographer architect named Alex McLean. You may have heard of him. He's got a bunch of beautiful books um, or horrific books. Um, but, you know, sprawl is certainly not compact, thus the name sprawl. It's not diverse. You, whole swaths of the landscape contain only one use and often only one house repeated over and over again. And it's not walkable because, look, look, the few streets that do actually connect because so few of them actually get you anywhere. The few streets that do connect have to become so wide because all the trips are going on those few streets. And notice the houses even turn their back to them because of the noxious nature of all the... They're called automotive sewers, right? Because they're measured only by capacity. That's the only characteristic that people care about. So, of course, you wouldn't let your kid out on that street. So you have the phenomenon of the cul-de-sac kid who's trapped in the subdivision, which is great until you're about six or maybe eight. And then you give them an allowance and you say, be independent, Spend it on whatever you want. And they say, great, can I have a ride to the mall? Because they're completely dependent on you as a parent. Um, so it's fun to break sprawl down into its constituent parts, the places where you only live, where you only work, where you only shop. Uh, institutions like schools, supersized, bigger and bigger and further and further apart. And the bigger you make a school, the further it is from every kid. And the phenomenon you have in the Sun Belt, like here in South Florida, you know, look at the ratio of the parking lot size to the school size. And the seniors and the juniors are driving the freshmen and the sophomore, sophomore students with the, you know, with the accidents to prove it. Um, another South Florida image. I saw this from a plane and then went on Google to get it. This is west of Fort Lauderdale. It's a community called Weston. They're very proud of their eight soccer fields and their eight baseball diamonds and all their tennis courts and everything else. But this is why we have the soccer mom in America. But you're not going to let your kid out on this street. You know, and to get from here to there, it's about a three-mile drive, right? Because of the way we've, 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 we've built it, with the presumption around this presumption of, of uniform, universal automobile use. So the soccer mom, you know, when I was a kid, I only had access to, you know, two tennis courts and two soccer fields, but they were in my neighborhood and I could walk to them. So these are all parts of the sprawl model. Once you make the decision that the car is, is the kind of atomic element in your equation, then everything begins to shape itself around the car. But the one part that nobody counted, if you're going to separate everything from everything else and then reconnect it only with automotive infrastructure, our interstate system, which was created for commerce and for vacation travel, has become a um, commuting way in very many places in the country. I always tell people it's a two-part deal. For many Americans, although the number keeps getting less, for about, actually, the most recent poll, it's only 10% of Americans who would rather live in a place where they can't walk to shops, to work, to school, to other things. But a certain portion of Americans want this. But I just say, you, know, you can have that, but you have this too. It's a two-part deal. One comes with the other. Often to absurd extremes, the amount of money we're spending, the, the, the public wealth that we're actually 
tossing away on this gold-plated horizontal infrastructure. When we used to build beautiful churches and city halls and post offices instead. Um, and then the experience of being in these places, if you can't read this, is, it's not Photoshop. It says, this light never turns green. This is outside of Orlando, actually. Um, Walter Kulash took this image. But the frustration that we feel in that automotive environment um, as drivers, of course, and then what it does to our cities in the way that we feel as pedestrians um, is a problem. So um, epidemiologists have been showing this slide now. You've probably seen it. But for 20 years now. But just the idea that we drive to the parking lot to take the escalator to the gym so we can get on a treadmill to walk tells you why we're in the fix that we're in physically as a society. So these are the two models. And the point of, these image, of this image is that they, they all have the same stuff. It's housing, it's shops, it's schools, it's, it's everything. But what's the grain? And then do you have a, what's called a dendritic, a branching street system where the highway goes to the arterial, goes to the collector, goes to the cul-de-sac? Or do you have a network? Because the, the great irony of sprawl is that this system that was created around the automobile, around the presumption of the automobile, actually fails very quickly the minute you get densities of any significance because all the traffic is on this one street. And if there's a car fire on that one street, your system shuts down. But look at the grid and all the choices of ways to get from place to place. This is why our traditional neighborhoods are the, are the, have the most hope, not for both growth growing up as cities and becoming more dense, but also for walkability. So um, when, what does it mean when we now look at... So that, that was my you know, developer talk. Like, if you're going to build a new place then this is what you need to know. Build towns, not sprawl. Build villages, not sprawl. Build cities, not sprawl. But what about existing cities? Because most of the work I do is in, in, in places that exist. Most of us live, all of us live in places that exist, and we want to make them better. When you're looking at your metropolitan area, you have to um, find those places where walkability is possible because walkability is a little bit, at least a little bit useful. Right? Because you have that mix of uses. And then you ask the question, what is missing or underrepresented among the different uses? And most places I work, and again, those of you who weren't in the panel yesterday, I forget who I've told this to, but I mean, the cities that everyone's talking about, you know, New York, Boston, Chicago, Washington, Portland, uh, San Francisco, these are the exceptions to the rule. And the typical city in America is either like a Phoenix or a Scottsdale or a Dallas or a... Um, you know, or in Orlando, where's my Orlando friend who bought me the beer? Thank you. Um, or it's a smaller place like a Cedar Rapids or a Grand Rapids where actually, you know, the, the, they're just beginning. They're just beginning to change their landscape around these topics if they're doing that at all, right? So in a place like Boise where I just did a walkability study, there's a 43 to 1 ratio of jobs to housing in the downtown, and that's not so unusual. And Boise is a really nice downtown, but they roll up the sidewalks at 5.30 because everyone's, there's no reason, very little reason to be there. So we have to find ways to make housing more affordable in our downtown centers because people want to live in these places. If not the boomers yet, then the millennials certainly. And in fact, once the millennials move in and make it safe, their parents' generation is then comfortable moving in. But it, the problem now is that we're having trouble providing it attainably at costs that these masses of folks want to, uh, are, are capable of paying. And when you bring the housing back, the other stuff all starts to get better. You know, Jane Jacobs back in the 60s talked about Wall Street. said, of course, Wall Street has no good restaurants, no good gyms. You need lunch traffic and dinner traffic to make a restaurant really thrive. And a gym needs people at lunchtime and at night. And when Wall Street got housing, of course, that all changed. Um, and then the schools are the last thing. And I'm not to say it happens. But what we're seeing in a number of cities is that the schools do improve um, about 15 years after everything else. Because the risk oblivious, millennials move in, and eventually they have kids, and eventually they fight. And you sacrifice about five years of that, and then the next parents who move in, the schools are somewhat better. So anyway, there's another question, which is what's valuable? And this applies now to mid-sized cities, or just not the small cities. And to begin to answer the question of affordability, it's one trick. What's valuable in being wasted? And very often, it's parking and structured parking lots. So this is Lowell, Massachusetts, where I did a downtown plant. And what we found in Lowell, there were a whole bunch of developers, and this is not my doing. This was done before me. There's a whole bunch of developers who were, you know, millions of square feet of, of vacated 
industrial era, early, beautiful industrial era lofts along the two rivers that were coming together in downtown Lowell. And they wanted to invite market rate housing downtown because 80% of the housing in Lowell, downtown Lowell, was subsidized and it was really a bad scene. And the developers said, well, we're having trouble, we're having trouble putting units of housing in this parking because our bank, in, in these buildings because our banks won't lend us money unless we meet a certain parking ratio. And that's what we see in a lot of cities. The cities are beginning to realize it, and they're lowering the parking requirements. But the banks often aren't, typically aren't. If you don't have 1.5 or 2 cars per unit, in the case of Lowell, it was only one, one car per unit the banks were demanding. What the city said was, hey, we've got five municipal parking garages that are mostly full but not entirely during the day and totally empty at night. And they wrote letters that the developers took to the bank that said, we assign you these spaces in these garages. And, now they're, and they were able to bring the units on it like 20 to 25% less than they would have, ha, would have been able to if they'd had to build parking for them. So these, are, these units are all, all now occupied now. Um, and I do this, you know, I, I try and bring this concept wherever there's a, an opportunity for it. Um, this is downtown West Palm Beach where I just did a walkability study. And you, you only look at the garages that have vacancies. And it's an interesting ratio. You have to have certainly daytime vacancies as well as nighttime vacancies. But based on the numbers, we found that these four downtown garages, um, this one had 300 extra, this, these had enough extra spaces to float 300 units, which could go, these are, these are sites we wanted to fill in the plan. Uh, this one had enough room for 90 units, this one for 350, um, and this one for 150. The green buildings are the buildings that we, that we realized were necessary to fill the missing teeth, the holes in the downtown fabric. So they have literally 890 units worth of untapped parking potential in their downtown. So it's a nice trick to bring to bear. I want to talk quickly about transit because um, it's a huge part of the use, the use, the useful city discussion. A town or a village or certainly a neighborhood can be perfectly walkable in the absence of transit, but walkable cities rely on transit utterly because if you can't get to all the cool parts of the city without a car, then you buy a car. And then the pressure mounts on the city to re-engineer itself around the fact that everyone's owning and driving cars. And the, ten and the tendency is, of course, to see the roads get wider, the, you know, the trees get removed, and they add more lanes, and all these things happen. The parking lots land everywhere. And so the, the goal of transit is to connect the walkable parts of your city to each other so those people who want to have a walking and biking experience can do that. Now, the flip side of the equation is that you know, while neighborhoods while cities rely on transit to be successful, transit totally relies on walkability to be successful. Because every transit trip begins or ends as a walk. And if you don't have walkability on at least one end of the, tr of the, of the route, then what do you do when you get off or get on? And the, the, the statistical failure, you know, Dallas area rapid transit, they've spent $3 billion. They've built the biggest light rail system in the country. Every year they've been building it, ridership on transit in Dallas has declined because, there's, because it doesn't connect walkability to walk. It doesn't connect. There's not walkability almost on either side of the line. So, you know, the transit community has begun to understand that they need to focus not just on density around rail stations and, and important bus stations, but neighborhood structure and walkability, which is all the things I'm going to be talking to you about today around rail stations. Um, the safe walk is the big part of the discussion. Most walkability experts, this is all they talk about. Um, as a planner, I feel that it's, it's alone necessary but not sufficient. But it's certainly the most important part of making people willing to walk is to give them a sense that they have a fighting chance against being hit by an automobile. It's not about crime. In most, most places I'm working, the danger is not crime or even perception. Perceptions of crime are not the problem. Perceptions of, of lack of safety near automobiles is the problem. So there's about 100 different moving parts that all add up to um, city streets being safer or less safe for pedestrians. The first is block size. This is Portland, famously walkable, famously 200-foot blocks. Salt Lake City, famously unwalkable, famously 600-foot blocks. It's almost like two different types of, of city, right? I mean, they're, they're vastly different from each other. But when you have a 200-foot block city, you can basically have a two-lane city. And most of the streets in Portland are two lanes. Most of the streets in Salt Lake City are, are six lanes. And in Salt Lake City, they give you flags. You've been there, they give you flags to hold when you cross the street, orange flags, so cars won't hit you. Because when you have so few streets that, and so much development, the streets have to become so wide to handle that development. 
This is a study of 24 different California cities when the block size doubled, the number of fatal non-highway crashes almost quadrupled. So there's a clear inverse relationship. The smaller the blocks, the safer your city. Um, then how about the number of lanes? And this is the conversation that I don't neglect to have wherever I go. Um, I always make sure that I hit upon the concept of in induced demand. Who here has heard of induced demand? Okay. Mostly my friends. Um, and it applies not just to highways, it applies to city streets. And what induced demand tells us is that ideal traffic planning is wrong, and we've seen over and over again that it's wrong, that when we widen the facility in order to, in, in order to, um, to allow for, to absorb the growth in travel that we're anticipating, that something interesting happens, that there's all these things called latent trips. There's all these trips that people would have been making had they not been in traffic. So the, the, the key way to describe it is that in congested systems, the principal constraint to driving is congestion, right? Because it's the, it's the way that most motorists are made to feel pain in their daily lives is being stuck in traffic. And because we're not paying the full cost of driving and all these other things I talked about that make driving so easy, the real cost to us is the congestion. So what happens when you widen, widen the highway? People move further away from work. Right? Of course, more development comes around the highway. People um, choose to commute more at peak hour than off-peak. They don't do other things like carpooling that they were doing before and, you know, ad infinitum. And um, this was in Newsweek magazine. I was delighted to read this in such a, you know, normal publication. It says, today's engineers acknowledge that building new roads usually makes traffic worse. To which I, you know, leapt in the air with joy and then said, wait a minute, who are these engineers and may I please meet some of them? Because the ones that I work with on a daily basis, and I should say there are plenty of exceptions, you may know some of them, but the engineers that I typically work with on a daily basis, even though they may tell me that they understand induced demand, they're making decisions every single day as if they don't understand induced demand. Because the citizens don't understand induced demand. And the citizens demand more, more capacity. They say, give us wider roads, give us more lanes, because then we won't have traffic anymore. But so they say, you know, the traffic's coming, and you build the extra lane, and the, they say, see, I told you the traffic was coming, it's full of cars. But of course, it's the lane that made that traffic possible. This is, this is the um, article that was presented to London at the Paris School of Economics. I have no idea what this means, but I know what this means, which is essentially the experiences, and we've had this experience now for about 40 years, that immediately the 40% of the new capacity is taken up by cars, and within four years, it's 100% taken up by cars. So the ratio of cars to capacity stays constant. And do you know what that constant is? It's the amount of congestion that people will stomach. So the question isn't whether you want congestion or not. It's how many lanes of congestion do you want and what kind of city do you want to be? Metro areas that invested in road capacity expansion fared no better in easing congestion than metro areas that did not. They ended up with higher congestion costs per person, wasted fuel, and travel delay. So if you feel you need a new highway, and people are building new highways right now, if you feel you need a new highway in this country, that's fine, but do not justify it, as everyone is now doing in Congress and elsewhere, do not justify it based on congestion. Because the saying in the industry is, you know, adding a lane to fight congestion is like loosening your belt to fight obesity. And it's actually the same phenomenon. But this applies to cities too. But here's the thing. I have this argument everywhere I go, and I say it in a session like this, and I see everyone's nodding, and they're smart, and they're convinced, and then I give up on that. Because as intellectually compelling as it may be, it's typically not a winning argument. And so most of the cities I work, thankfully, and there are exceptions, like, you know, most of the oldest cities in New England and New York, there are exceptions where every street in every city is at peak congestion. But there, those are exceptions to the rule. And almost everywhere I work, like Oklahoma City, there are plenty of streets that have more lanes than they have cars on them. And, you know, in Oklahoma City, um, the mayor panicked because Prevention Magazine said that they were the worst city for pedestrians in the entire country. And so he called me in and said, what can we do? And I said, okay, I'll do a walkability study. And we looked at the car counts. And these car counts downtown are, um, you know, 5,000 and 4,000 and 8,000 and 6,000. And we know, any, any engineer will tell you, that two-lane, a two-lane street a typical two-lane street can handle 10,000 cars per day. So why then were these streets with these less than two-lane capacities 
size to be arterials is four to six lanes in the brand new downtown plan. All of these streets, and look at the car counts. And I said, strangely, what no one else had said, which is you've got a fundamental disconnect between the capacity and the volume. And you know, in America, we've stopped, we, 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 vehicle miles traveled per person, VMT, peaked in 2008. So it isn't like we have to plan for more cars to come. We can look at the traffic now and say with, with good confidence, if your streets can handle the traffic now, they will be good streets into your future. And so let's make these streets the size that will hold the traffic that they have in them. And then all of a sudden, you have opportunities to do other things. So I was called in. It so happens Oklahoma City has a lot of money. There's a big extraction economy there. I like to say the old economy is building the new economy. Because when they decided to invest that money in, as they were building a new 50-story tower, Devon Energy Tower, in the heart of the downtown, generating $200 million in tax increment, they said, let's spend the money and rebuild every city street in a 50-block core from building face to building face. Rebuild them. Keep the trees that are good and rebuild everything else. And so my job was to, was to design the, um, the curb to curbs. And essentially what I was able to do by right-sizing the number of lanes to the amount of traffic was to double the amount of on-street parking, which merchants love and need, and to introduce a full bicycle network where there was no bicycle network at all because there's just extra road, extra room in the roads. So a street like this, you know, four lanes to nowhere becomes uh, two lanes here under construction. street like this, major, this is a major street with a lot of traffic. We said, okay, we'll keep it at five lanes, but we'll you know, put in a median. And the lanes were so wide, there was room for a bike lane. Right? So, and this is about, if you go to Oklahoma City now, you'll be like disappointed. Because if you compare it to Aspen or Manhattan or so many other places, it's still a driving city. And they drive more than almost anywhere else in America. But it's so different than what it was. And now they can bike there. And the street life is coming back. And the shops are coming back. And the housing uh, has landed there. Here's a little trick that I love to show to people um, because it's a win-win-win. Four-lane street, typical American street, a very dangerous street. The red car goes left. The white car stops. The green car T-bones them. Um, and this is what's called the classic American road diet, where you take the pavement, same width, and you just remove two lanes and put in a center turn lane, which gives you extra room for bikes or parked cars or something else. This is no surprise. Um, the number of injury accidents drops tremendously. But this is the big surprise. Four-lane roads of the type I showed you are extraordinarily inefficient because the speeding lane is also the turn lane. And the great surprise here, these are 17 different road diets studied by ACOM, is that the volume afterwards was no less than the volume before on average. So you can handle just as much traffic, which people want, and you can fit in a bike lane or a, or a parking lane and it gets safer for everybody. So that's a nice little trick. But now that I've advocated for left-hand turn lanes, a big problem in a lot of American cities are these unnecessary and unnecessarily long left-hand turn lanes that kill downtowns. This is Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. All these shops are out of business because this is a state-owned road. They insisted on a 300-foot-long left-hand turn lane. Do you know what this serves? A street with five houses on it. That's all. But the state was in charge, and all these shops don't have parallel parking now because of that. So you have to fight left-hand turn lanes that are unnecessary as well. One-way traffic is very intimidating to pedestrians. The fact that there's no traffic, traffic in the opposite direction. I'm not talking about like one-lane one-ways that you find throughout Portland and New York City and other places. I'm talking about multi-lane one-ways. In, in America, we have this system uh, where our streets in the 60s and 70s and in many, almost most American cities, were reverted were converted from multi-lane two-way streets to multi-lane one-way streets. There's no traffic in the opposing direction, so cars can go faster. There's always this other lane to jockey into. And whatever lane you're in, of course, the, the other lane is the faster lane. right? You've got to get in it. But also, as a driver, you have a fundamental change of mindset from driving along, knowing that you're stuck behind the car in front of you, so you're looking around, enjoying the landscape, right? seeing people, maybe some eye contact. But the minute that you're in this sort of environment, if you're me, you're like, how can I get through it the fastest? It's a game. So you're a different kind of driver. You're more of a racer than a, than a, than a driver. And um, they're really horrible for retail. The great story now in one-way reversions, which hundreds of cities, at least 100 and more every day, are doing, um, is to bring business back. So in Vancouver, Washington, they tried everything, all the, all the tricks 
from the 80s on, all the planners' tricks, I call them the five Bs, the bricks, the berms, the bannards, the bollards, the bandstands, and balloons, six. And the business did not improve, but then when, and it's written up in Governing Magazine, a really important article called The Return of the Two-Way Street. When they went from one-way back to two-way, the revenue to all the merchants doubled. Not because there were twice as many cars, but because the cars were behaving in a different way. You know, and when are the cars passing your shop? Because if the cars are only passing your shop on the way to work, they're not shopping. Because people shop on the way home from work, right? So one-way streets really distribute vitality in dangerously uneven ways. Um, in Savannah, East Broad Street was converted one way in 1969. 64% of the businesses on the tax rolls left the tax rolls. More recently, they reverted it back to two-way, and quickly there was a 50% increase in businesses. So certainly on retail streets, commercial streets, it's an important thing to do. So a typical place like Cedar Rapids, where I'm working, has an all-four-lane, half-one-way system, and no money. I mean, they're not, a, they're not a bankrupt city, but they don't have Oklahoma City's money to rebuild the streets. And what we're doing in Cedar Rapids is what I'm doing in most of the places where I'm working, is we're, we're just restriping. We keep everything the same, because you can restripe a whole downtown grid for the price of rebuilding one street, right? So here you have a wonderful core of small blocks. You have very low, there was the farm boom and the farm bust, so very low traffic volumes, and we're able to convert everything. Oh, so I say, restripe, look closely. <laughs> Photoshop is wonderful. Um, but we're going from all four lane, half one way, to, with the exception of this state highway, all two lane, all two way. And this is going to be about a five-year process. As they restripe and repave their streets, you know, they don't have the cash on hand, but as they restripe and repave their streets, they're going to roll into it. So we're adding 60% more parking. We're converting parallel parking to angle parking um, and uh, a much more robust bicycle system because the room is there in the pavement. And this is the discussion we were having yesterday at the panel with the mayors and with Jeanette Sadakan is it's a question of allocation of existing streetscape more equitably and in a way that's safer for everybody. And no one suffers because the capacity of the road is still in excess of the number of people who are driving on it. Then there's the width of the lanes themselves. And Andres Duane used to joke, um, the typical street to the typical subdivision in America is wide enough to allow you to witness the curvature of the earth. Um, but just the standards have changed. And the standards have changed. You know, this is a subdivision from the 60s and the 80s. Same height. Look at how the roads have changed. In my old neighborhood in South Beach, when it came time to fix the drainage because it was clogging with water and the thunderstorm afternoons, the new standards kicked in, and we lost half our sidewalk and all of our street trees because this new standard, the street was working perfectly well and perfectly safe, safely before. But there's, uh, so you know, this is what's happening in a lot of, a lot of places. Um, both DOTs but also fire departments and other organizations feel that actually that wider streets are safer, which, which we know isn't true. And for years, the traffic engineers have told us because they learned from highways they're highway engineers who then went to work in cities. And they told us, oh, if you have clear zones and shoulders and no trees, what they call FHOs in Virginia, fixed and hazardous objects, you get rid of all those things. You make the lanes wider, it will be safer. And that applies to a highway, but not to a city street. Because on a highway, you set your speed based on the speed limit, right? You look at the speed limit, you set your cruise control at 9 miles an hour over the speed limit. On a high, on, in a city, your speed is determined by the speed at which you feel safe driving. It's what Malcolm Gladwell talks about. He calls it it's risk homeostasis. We adjust our behavior to the degree of risk that we want to have. Um, so one study concluded that increased lane widths are responsible for about 900 additional traffic fatalities per year. Citizens know this. They fight for skinnier streets. Portland, bless their hearts, even had a skinny streets program, still has it. The developer, Vince Graham, for whom we built this project ION outside of Charleston, um, you know, he goes to conferences and shows his two-way streets with, you know, very narrow travel ways. Um, and he says, uh, he quotes this philosopher who said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the road that leads to life. And this plays very well in the South, as you can imagine. So the ITE now for city streets has, uh, Institute of Traffic Engineers has embraced a 10-foot standard, 11-foot if you've got buses. Most places I work, the departments of transportation and the county engineers are insisting on 12-foot lanes, which really, a 12-foot lane is a 70-mile-an-hour lane. Why is it belonging in your downtown? 10 feet is a, is a standard. 8-foot parking lanes is a little wider than they really are in traditional communities. This is a, 
a new definition of Lexus lane. This is a Lexus in a, a six-foot bike lane. But the cars are only six feet wide. So there's no reason why. I was in Montana, and the fellow at the DOT asked for 10-foot parking lanes, which is just, you know, insane. Biking, I like to say, is the biggest planning revolution currently underway in only some American cities. Um, my friend Tom Brennan sent me these pictures of the Portland commute. And I said, what was it? Was this bike to work day? And he said, no, this was Tuesday in Portland. But the, the experience, this is Chicago's new bike lanes, buffered bike lanes protected by parking from moving vehicles. Um, these sort of facilities mint cyclists. And the safer and more robust and more visible biking facilities you can create, that is how you create a cycling population. And what makes cyclists safe is the larger biking population. The experience in New York City is the number of bicyclists keeps going up and the number of injuries is flat. Per capita, it's dropping precipitously because as drivers become aware of bikers, they begin to drive more safely. Um, this is Prospect Park West, one of Jeanette Sadek Khan's accomplishments in, um, in New York City. And you can see the cars pulled off the curb, the buffered bike lane. This is the sort of bike lanes now that the progressive cities are insisting upon. And if you're not putting in buffered bike lanes, at least a couple in the heart of your city, then you're falling behind in terms of providing a biking city. Even places like Long Beach, California, historically automotive communities, when they invest in bike lanes, they increase the biking population. But, however, if you believe, as Pasadena does, that every lane is a bike lane, then really no lane is a bike lane. <laughs> this is the only bicyclist I met, I met in Pasadena. And they don't have that cycling culture. And then this is weather. This is summer temperatures and winter temperatures, and then you see the... It's a cloud. If you were to chart it statistically, there's almost no correlation between temperature and biking population. It's a function of culture, which is a function of facilities. So don't let people tell you it's too cold or too hot to bicycle. It's a factor. It's just not the dominant factor. And I just want to show you, because I just got the pictures, this is, this is the highway that separates Memphis downtown from its river. And I did a walkability study, and, I, and you did the car counts, and this street has twice the capacity it needs for the current cars that are on it. So they've just striped this half entirely for bikes and peds. So now we have a driving street and a biking street, and a whole bike culture is growing up in, uh, in Memphis around this street. Unfortunately, it's a pilot project. It doesn't yet connect to anything, and they've got to connect it or it will not succeed. But you understand that um, it's great for morale, at least, to get, it, to get it started. Parallel parking is a barrier of steel that protects the curb from moving vehicles. Um, this is a street in Fort Lauderdale. You can see you can park on the left and not on the right. This is happy hour on the left. This is happy hour on the right. And that restaurant's now out of business because no one wants to sit four feet from mo cars moving at 60 feet per second. So parallel parking is often, people remove it, remove it in the name of beautification, but actually you tend to need it or something like it to protect the sidewalk. And then the other part of this equation, of course, are trees. The latest studies show that streets with trees are safer because cars actually go slower on streets that have trees and other vertical objects next to them. Um, so sometimes they slow down rapidly. But the point is, better he hit that than a pedestrian. I'm assuming it's a he. And um, uh, you know, the, the, when, you're on a when you are a pedestrian on a sidewalk and you've had this experience with mature trees, because of the laws of perspective, you actually often can't even see the moving vehicles, right? The trunks are really making you feel safe. So trees are really key. And then, you know, I'm going to skip through some of this, um, but, well, I'll go very fast. Risk homeostasis tells us that these sort of intersections that are now illegal, that we're not allowed to build, are actually safer than the conventional intersections. If you're hit by a car going 35, you're 10 times as likely to die than if you're hit by a car going 25. So you want every cue of the environment in your walkable areas to talk about cars moving more slowly. You can put a sign up, but the sign alone doesn't do it, which is why intersections like this actually can be effective. And this was considered the danger, most dangerous street in Stewart, Florida, until they counted and found out that per capita, per car, it was the safest street because the drivers were scared. You know, seven streets in a railroad track. The most, you know, and um, the most dangerous streets were these, of course, the DOT standard issue streets. So what happened in Sweden in 1968 that caused this one blip, you know, kind of a three-year drop in traffic deaths? Does anyone know? They switched from driving on the left-hand side of the street to driving on the right-hand side of the street. And everyone was confused and scared. If we want to save lives in this country, we should switch every three years <laughs> side to side. Now, I'm not recommending that, but the point is, 
We should be allowed, you know, beware of safety. <laughs> we are told to design environments that provide, that, that, that for the drunk at midnight, that prevent no challenge to drivers. But in fact, all that does is create the sort of speeding that's actually increased our death toll in this country. The engineers don't understand this yet. The radius of curvature of the corner, is it one foot or 40 feet that determines how fast the cars are going, how much asphalt you have to cross. Um, walkable cities... Walkable cities do not have push-button signals, okay? They don't. And I can tell you more about that another time. And then the number of signals you have, this is sculpture, but the number of signals you have, in Davenport, Iowa, the same company that, the, the company that consulted with the city and told them how many lights to have was the city that sold them their lights. I think that's the case all over America. And most places I work, when, when you change a four-laner to a two-laner, all of a sudden you have a street that, goes perf that works perfectly well with a four-way stop sign. And if you've been to Georgetown or Alexandria or other places, parts of Aspen, the four-way stop, I, it's the new roundabout. The four-way stop is a dream for pedestrians. Everyone's looking at everyone else. The bikes just blow through. You know this. It's a dream. And if you, where I'm working in West Palm Beach, we, we recommended turning this many of the signals into four-way and some three-way, two-way stops. Saves a lot of money. Every signal in, in, in um, Cedar Rapids, we're eliminating... 11 out of 17 stoplights downtown. And each one of them, they were about to pay $150,000 to fix. So they appreciate that. And then just all the details of the built environment. This is fun. This is, this is what they call objective journalism. And you can't see what it says down here, but it says, um, it's the Las Vegas Sun. Some say the entrance to city center is not inviting to pedestrians. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> but when, it's, it, this is a discussion of, of vocabulary. When everything about the landscape communicates automobiles with its swoops and its stripes, then it doesn't feel like a pedestrian place. So that's important, too. Look for stream form and aerodynamic shapes, and you don't have a pedestrian environment. And then, you know, all the little details. <laughs> this slide is the argument for, for generalists and not specialists to make the decisions in our cities, you know, which is why my typical client is the mayor, because the mayor has to look at the big picture. But yes, this street will be bone dry within 30 seconds of the 100-year storm. But what about the non-emergency condition, right? So, and then, so all this would lead you to conclude that we should put pedestrian malls everywhere. But in fact, 95% of the pedestrian malls in America failed. The exceptions are places like Aspen, which have incredible economies, or college towns. So be very careful about removing cars from your main streets, actually. It's a, it's a history of failure. If you're going to do it, though, do it cheaply with tables and chairs and potted plants and don't spend money. What all these cities did is they spent millions of dollars building pedestrian malls that they then had to spend millions of dollars to unbuild. So test it like this. And in places like New York, where the shops don't rely on cars, they will be successful. But most American cities, they won't. So you have to be careful. Now, I'm almost out of time. I'm going to speed through the final two categories. They're much quicker. The comfortable walk has to do with spatial orientation and principally with, with feeling contained. You know, it's a little bit counterintuitive. We Americans love broad prospects of climbing mountains and seeing great views. But actually, evolutionary biologists tell us all animals simultaneously seek both, pro both prospect and refuge. Prospect and refuge. And that's why we pay a lot of money to go to Europe to inhabit spaces like this. We new urbanists have been talking about it for a long time. What's the right ratio of height to width? Um, you know, six to one in Salzburg is perfectly delightful. The opposite of Salzburg is Houston. Um, and the message of this slide is, of course, the principal villain in achieving that sense of enclosure in our city streets is the surface parking lot, right? And someone complained when I showed this slide because, oh, that's an old picture of Houston. So I said, okay, I've got a new picture of Houston. But the, the um, uh, sense of enclosure is undermined by the parking requirement and what that does. And then finally, the interesting walk has to do with friendly faces, openings, the signs of humans that we all, you know, humans are among, we're among the social primates. Nothing interests us more than other humans. We want to see signs of human habitation. Spatial definition is not enough. So this is a perfect one-to-one -one street. It connects the two best hotels in Grand Rapids, which is a very walkable downtown. But when one side of the street is an exposed parking deck and the other side of the street is a hotel conference facility that was apparently designed in admiration for the exposed parking deck, <laughs> then you don't get many people on the street. And Joe Riley, the mayor of Charleston now for 40 years, 10 terms, taught us that it only takes 25 feet of building to hide 250 feet 
a parking garage. This is one in Miami that I call the Chia Pet Garage. Uh, same idea. The garage is not a problem. Parking garages are actually great anchors in your downtown, but you don't want to have them up against the street in the areas where you're hoping to have people walk. So I like to end with this project. It's um, a wonderful example of the power of connecting walkability to walkability. Uh, on the left is the Convention Center neighborhood of Columbus, Ohio. A lot of pedestrians are in that neighborhood. There's a big sports stadium in that neighborhood. No one was crossing the bridge into the short north. The short north is a great neighborhood, a struggling neighborhood, an ethnic neighborhood, great restaurants, tchotchke shops. You know, if, you're, if you go on a convention, you've got to buy something for your spouse. You know that. But no one was crossing the bridge no, because this was the bridge. And no one was crossing the bridge because it didn't have that sense of enclosure or interest um, into the short north. And the short north was really struggling until when it came time to rebuild the decrepit bridge, the city paid $1.9 million to the state and added 80 feet to the bridge, gave the 80-foot deck to a developer who built this. And now if you read the articles, not the planning magazine articles, you read the newspaper articles, this bridge brought the short north back. And now it's the hottest neighborhood in Columbus. So when you connect walkability to walkability, when there's a small gap between them, and it doesn't have to be a highway gully. It could be, it could be three jiffy lubes. You know? Just whenever you've got something bad between two walkable areas, that's a place to focus first. And um, so that's the list. And there's more I'm going to tell you. I could tell you. It's all in the book. And I am out of time. So what I want to end with um, is this is just a walk. I was going to show you a walkability study from Fort Lauderdale. Um, I don't need to. But um, thanks for waiting. So it's all in the book. I do hope you'll read the book. I don't care if you buy the book. Just read the book. Steal it. Beg, borrow. Um, and um, if you go to my website, which is jeffspeck.com, I've got a ton of resources also. This is like a two-hour talk that can be a three-hour talk that I gave you in one hour. So it is the short and quick version. Um, if you want a shorter and quicker version of this talk, my TEDx Mid-Atlantic talk is an 18-minute version of this talk. So if you want to share this with your city leaders and other folks in your community, that's a great way to start. Pull them together for a lunch and you know, have, that, have that conversation. These are the other two books that I wrote with my old colleagues, Andres and Liz. Um, Suburban Nation um, talked about the story of sprawl. Um, we just reissued that 10th year anniversary. And then this, this book, the Smart Growth Manual, was designed to be read in one coast-to-coast -coast flight by a developer. That's the idea. But it's, it's a manual that just, it's not literature, but it lists all the things that people seem to get wrong when they build communities. So um, this is my Twitter handle. I'm on Twitter, so uh, my self-worth is based on how many followers I have, so I hope you'll, I hope you'll follow me. And um, I'm super grateful for all your attention. Uh, and uh, I, I think I've run out of time. Do I have time to, do we have to vacate the room or can I take some questions? Um, Be honest, it's okay. I used up my question time, I know. Okay. So thank you for your attention. I really appreciate it. First question. Yes, ma'am. Wait for the mic. So oh, mic is coming. Who did you point to? All the questions. Um, everything that you showed is about America, where maybe the uh, car traffic is not increasing. Are you doing any work in India, China? where the car traffic is increasing and they have maybe the opposite problem, maybe the same problem. They're trying to solve it with the mistakes that America's already made. So the, the, the talk I bring to, I spoke in Australia and a couple other places. The talk I bring to foreign countries is very different talk. This is such an American talk, and my specialty is certainly America. The talk I bring to foreign countries is don't make the same mistakes we've made. And here's what we've learned. And what we've learned, as the urbanist Jan Gale um, said, essentially is that in the you know, 20th century in America, cars have behaved like water. You give them more space and they fill it up. You give them Cities that gave them more space, that invited them, like Houston and Phoenix, they got more cars. The cities that gave them less space, like Boston and you know, Washington, they got fewer cars. So the question, the question isn't whether you can satisfy the vehicle or not. The question is, what kind of city do you want to be? And I think when you look at the arguments for why walkability is so important, Hopefully, those will have the impact that will allow the decision makers to say, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe car ownership, universal car ownership, is not a healthy path for our, for our nation. Last question, yes. And, I'll, I, and I'm happy to take more questions privately in the bar afterwards, if you buy me a drink.
I actually live in New York City, okay. and I do real estate in New York City. And New York has opened up a lot of new neighborhoods, like on the west side, and they're opening up like the Hudson Yards. But I was wondering, what does the average person think is walkable? Is there a certain distance that? What is the what person? Does the per, what, what do they think is a walkable distance? Yeah. It totally depends on the city. Um, the five-minute walk is a great measure, which is a half, which is a quarter mile, which means. Na- and if you look globally, you find neighborhoods tend to be about a half mile across. And look at Tribeca and the East Village and the West Village, different neighborhoods of New York, you'll see they have about that half-mile measure. When we design a new community, we use that measure because actually the way Andres Stolani puts it is a five-minute walk, if it's a comfortable walk, you just feel stupid driving, right? But in a city like New York, you know people are walking miles. And when I'm in New York, I, sometimes it's easier just to, or, or you've got an extra 10 minutes. So the, the real question is you compare the different modes. New York breaks all the rules of, that I'm talking about. They're, they're, you know, there are more transit stops. There are more subway stops in New York City than in all other subway systems in America combined. So New York City is just a different animal. The, the principal message I have for New York is that there's never been a place where it's clearer that the number of cars in New York are a function of the number of lanes in New York. You could have three times the lanes, you'd have three times the cars. You could also get rid of a lot of lanes. It's clear to me that Broadway, from 117th Street all the way to Union Square, it's an extra street. And in fact, when the grid was laid in, it wasn't a street. You could, you could make that whole thing. That, for me, that's the great move, the great next move in New York. If New York wants to become better and more expensive and more tough to live in. It's the trail. Yeah, it's the old Indian Trail. Then take Broadway from 117th. So I'm saying maybe New York shouldn't get better. But if we want New York to be more, I guess I'm being a bit silly, but if you want New York to be a more welcoming and green and sustainable place. And the first next move is all of Broadway from 117th to Union Square. I had an editorial in the Daily News that was completely ignored um, that said that. But it's okay because it wasn't my idea anyway. Uh, I have to stop. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you outside.